If you got your Bibles, I'd like for you to turn to the book of Colossians. It's Colossians chapter 2, and uh, we're going to be looking at verses 6 through 15. Paul has been uh, writing a letter uh, to this church at Colossae, and we've entitled our series Enough, because what he is writing to them is to tell them that who Jesus is is enough. He is sufficient, and he is supreme. And what was happening is there in that city of Colossae, there were some false teachers that were taking, picking up some things from the culture, and they were trying to add it to the gospel. It's what we call syncretism. It's where you add a bunch of elements into something, and when you do that, you change the basic substance of, of what was there. And so by adding all these different things into the gospel, they then present this and said, here is the gospel. He says, no, that's completely opposite from what the true gospel is. And by you adding all these things, what you're doing is you are really de dethroning Christ. You're not enthroning him, you're dethroning him. And you're not giving him a place of supremacy. And so he's writing them this letter to help them to overcome some of that false teaching. And a part of what he's writing is he's building up the deity of Christ and who Christ is. And so you get to verses 6 through 12. It got me thinking as I read through those verses that um, as Christian lingo, when someone asks you about uh, a salvation experience, many times our response is, uh, I ask Jesus to be my personal Lord and Savior. I ask Jesus to be my personal Lord and Savior. All right, look at those words. Start at the back. Savior. Save you. To save you from sin. We have all sinned, and our sins have created this incredible debt that we cannot pay that separates us from God. And when Jesus came and died on the cross, he died on the cross, he took the penalty of all of our sins on him, and he paid that penalty for us because the Bible says the wages of, of sin is death. And so he died for us. He was that perfect sacrifice. So he saved me from my sins. Then we talked about my personal Lord and Savior. Lord, what does Lord mean? Lord means that uh, you have total ownership and total control. If you're the Lord of a person's life, it means you give guidance and direction. You rule over their life and, uh, and lead them in that direction. And because he is the son of God and because uh, I was created by God, then I know that he wants the best for me, so it only makes sense to say, hey, I want your son, his spirit, to live within me to rule my life. I pers personally accepted Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. He saved me from my sins. He's the Lord of my life. He directs me and guides me. Then there's that word personal. Personal. I've accepted Jesus as my personal Lord and Savior. Um, we kind of throw that out, but we don't really think much about what it means. Personal Lord and Savior. What does it mean by personal? Well, in uh, Colossians chapter 2, verses 6 through 12, through, uh, through 15, the Apostle Paul writes to this church, and as he's writing to them, he is driving home this personal nature of the relationship that we have with Jesus Christ. And he uses a phrase, in him, with him, about eight different times just in that passage. And when you see something like in him, with him, that just shows a union that you have with Christ. So let's read these verses, and then we're going to break this down. Follow with me, starting in verse six. In verse six, he says, therefore, 
as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. In him also you were circumcised with the circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. And he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Now, Let's take this, this kind of this personal nature uh, over here, and the title of the message is just In Him, all right? So what do we learn about In Him? I want you to write these down. It's just going to be uh, kind of bullet statements, and for you to look at this passage and see if that helps you to better understand this personal relationship we have. Number one is this. We are to zealously walk in Him. Zealously walk in Him. Verse six starts out and it says, therefore, and as you all know, whenever you see therefore, you ask yourself, what is it there for? And what it's there for is what he talked about earlier. And he talked about the supremacy of Christ and he talked about the all-sufficiency of Christ. And because of how great Christ is and uh, he is ruler over all, therefore, as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. You received him understanding his power and his strength, and he was the son of God, and so you need to walk in him. Walk in him the same way that you received him. Your present conduct should match up with the doctrine that was taught to you at your conversion. The same things that were shared with you at your conversion, this is the kind of life that you are need to live. So you need to receive him as Lord. So walk in him. He says you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. There is to be a zeal and a devotion, and you need to put aside complacency, get out of the shallow water, get into the deep water, and understand more about who Jesus is. Zealously walk in him. And so he's encouraging these believers. He says, man, you've heard, you've been taught well. Epaphras, who founded that church, taught you well. You gotta walk in him, okay? Zealously walk in him. And then in verse seven, he explains it, rooted and built up in him. Rooted, that's a word that means to drive down a foundation. It means an establishment to, to, I mean, it means to like establish a foundation. You drive some stakes in the ground and whenever you have a foundation, a foundation is never to stay there by itself. Whenever you build a foundation, it's because you're going to build something on that. And he says, you're rooted, you've got your foundation there. And then what you do is you build on top of this and you're built up in him. And it's a continual process. And he says, you're supposed to be built upon who Christ is. You've got the foundation. He is Lord. He is Savior. Now, I want you in your life to continue to be built up. You need to walk 
in him. And then he says, and established in the faith, just as you were taught. Established in the faith. This whole system of faith that we've been talking about, you need to be established in that faith, just as you were taught. So you've got all these false teachers coming in and telling you different things. I'm telling you, you remember the gospel that you heard from Epaphras? You remember the way he taught you? You remember the things he said? Stick with that. Stay in that direction. So you want to stay in what the God's word has to say, stay in the truth of the gospel, be established in that faith. And then at the end, he says, abounding in thanksgiving. That word abounding means it's like a river that's running and a bunch of rain has come and all of a sudden it's overflowing its banks. He says, you are to be abounding in thanksgiving. And uh, if you lack a deep sense of gratitude for God, you are usually vulnerable to doubt and spiritual questions. Whenever we don't appreciate God for who he is, we begin to question him. And he says, you need to abound in thanksgiving over all the things that God has done for you. So this is how he starts it off. So you are to zealously walk in him, and then he goes verses eight through 15. Now, as a pastor, whenever you come to a particular passage of scripture, and you begin to open up commentaries and see what do wiser people, what have they said about this passage? And when you open up a commentary and they tell you, these are some of the most confusing verses in all of Scripture. I just can't tell you what that does for me and for my heart uh, to say, you know, in the next 20 minutes, I've got to somehow explain to you the most confusing verses uh, in all of, of Scripture. So we're going to skip that, and I'm going to share my testimony. Uh, no. <laughs> This is not going to be that bad. We're going to walk through this. But this is why it was, they say it's confusing. There have been false teachers that have come in to Colossae. But we're not 100% sure exactly what they were teaching. As you study this book, you'll see Paul pick up on some things and identify some things or deal with some things. And when you see him deal with that, then you go, okay, maybe that's one of the false teachings. Then you identify, maybe that's one of the false teachings. So as you read through this passage of Scripture, for you and for me, it might not be crystal clear. But for the Colossians, it was very clear. Because they knew exactly what the teachers were talking about and knew exactly what Paul was talking about. But I'll tell you what you can pull from these verses. He talks about the supremacy and the sufficiency of Christ and what it means for us to be in him. Jesus is my personal Lord and Savior. Personal. I need to be in him. First of all, I zealously walk in him. Second, I remain in him and his word. Remain in him and his word. However you started this journey with Christ, you need to remain in him and his word. And he says in verse eight, see to it that no one else takes you captive. When he says, see to it, that is a word that means heed, be on guard. Be on guard. I got a warning for you. Be careful. Don't let anyone take you captive by philosophy and empty deceit. Now, he's not talking about that philosophy is wrong. He's talking about their specific philosophy. It's empty deceit. It's a sham. And he says, don't let them take you captive. And I love that phrase because that's really what happens to us. 
we begin to listen to what the culture has to say and to what other people have to say, and they try to add to the gospel, and they tell you that, no, what you believe really can't be true. There must be more to this. I think it would feel better if you said this. I think it'd make more sense if you could add this. And then all of a sudden, we get captive by all of these words is what everyone else has said and say, well, I guess that's the way the gospel is. But yet it is opposite from what's in here. And you get taken captive by it. And what you end up is with a feel good, nobody gets their feelings hurt, a tolerant, soft teaching of the gospel, which doesn't do anybody any good. And so he says, see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit. And he says, this is how you can identify it, according to human tradition. If all they're doing is giving you human tradition, all these different oral traditions and teachings of others, don't add it to the gospel. According to the elemental spirits of the world, that is the, um, most believe that uh, as you read through here, they people, they worshiped angels. They were real uh, preoccupied with demons and spirits and, and felt like that they had some, uh, the, the right uh, formula to be able to overcome these demons. And he says, don't worry about that. Christ has done everything at the cross. You don't need to add anything else. And then he said, and not according to Christ. So if somebody comes to you and they try to add to God's word and they say it's because of the traditions of the world or it's because of all this demonology or anything else that I've come up with or other spirits or planets or whatever, he said, don't add that to it. If it's not according to Christ, don't add to it. So what you need to do is you need to remain in Christ and in his word. He is my personal Lord and Savior, so I remain in him. I remain in his word. Number three is this, be filled with the fullness of him. Be filled with the fullness of him. Now, I've just got to be real honest with you. I, it's hard for me to fully understand what it means to have the fullness of Christ in you. Now, I, I can tell you theologically all that stuff, but, but boy, just practically, it's beyond what I can even imagine. Because you get to verse 9, and he says this. He says, for in him, in Christ, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. We've already talked about this. He talked about it in chapter 1. That when you see Jesus Christ, he's not just a good teacher. He's not the guy that was just a great carpenter. He was not the guy that was uh, the Rotarian Speaker of the Year. He was not the guy that just walked around in Birkenstocks and told everybody that I'll do a miracle for you. He wasn't just this happy little guy, you know, for three years, everybody wrapped their arms around him, thought it was so sad that he died. No, not at all. He is the Son of God. All the deity of God dwelt in him. And he was the agent of creation, and he will also be the one in judgment. I mean, he is all powerful. And it says in verse 9, for in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. And if that wasn't enough, look what he says in verse 10, and you have been filled in him. Hello. We sit here and talk about all the greatness of Jesus, and also we come back and says, and you've been filled in him. Whoa. And he says, who is the head of all rule and authority? When we say you be filled with the fullness of him, it means that God can meet every spiritual need in your life. Jesus Christ can meet every spiritual need in your life and it is fully met because you've got the fullness of him that dwells in your heart. And it's through the Holy Spirit, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, through the Trinity, it's through the Holy Spirit that lives in our, in our hearts. We are fully filled with him. Number four, be inwardly cleansed by him. To be inwardly cleansed by him. 
into verse 11. Verse 11 says, in him also you were circumcised with the circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Now most of you that came this morning said, gosh, I wish I could hear some detailed talk about circumcision. Um, and I, you know, I get that on tear-offs constantly, and I really apologize that I've not been able, uh, able to do that uh, for you, um, but we gotta talk about it. Okay, are you ready? Okay. In him, in Jesus also, he says, you were circumcised with the circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. During that day, it started back with the Abrahamic covenant that when God set aside his people, he said circumcision is an act that needs to take place and it shows that you're like putting off the flesh and you're being a part of the covenant of God. And so every Jewish male went through circumcision. And so what would happen is, is that after Jesus came and died and rose from the dead and showed them what the gospel was, they said, you don't need circumcision to be a part of the family of God or to be in the covenant of God. You receive Christ as Savior, you're a part of the family of God. You are adopted into the family. You are God's child. And, and so Jew, Gentile, all of us. But there are some people who are of the Jewish tradition who wanted to come into the church and say, all this Jesus stuff is good, but I still think that the guys need to be circumcised. And what Paul, he deals with this in Galatians, is saying, no, that doesn't need to happen. He said, let me tell you why it doesn't need to happen is because it's already happened when you receive Christ as Savior and it happened in your heart. Because what Jesus did is he came into your heart, he cleansed you of all unrighteousness and he put aside that sin nature and as you put aside that sin nature and you allow Christ to come into your heart, then he cleanses you and he cleanses that inward nature. Now we still have battles with sin and the Bible says that if we sit there and say we have no sin, we're liars. But what we do know is that we have forgiveness and that we have the grace of God and that his spirit fills us. And as we do those battles with, with right and wrong or, or, or good and evil, as those battles take place in our heart, we've got the Holy Spirit that is there to give us everything that we need to win those battles. And so he says that we are to be inwardly cleansed by him. Talked about the putting off of the flesh. And then we get to the fifth one, and that is that we're buried and raised from the dead with him. We're buried and raised from the dead with him. It's what we talked about in baptism. Verse 12, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. Now, look at those words real close. Having been buried with him in baptism. The reason we do baptism and by immersion is that when a person stands there, and you saw those 14 people and they were baptized, when they stood there, it represented their life before Christ. They were sinners separated from God. And then they made a commitment to say, I want Christ to come into my heart. When Christ came into my heart, it says they were buried with him in baptism. That means they died to their self. When Jesus hung on the cross for six hours, at the end of those six hours, he died. They took his body down, they wrapped it up, and they buried him. We were buried with Christ. And Paul writes it, you're buried with Christ, just as he was, was buried. And you've got these sins that have separated from God, and you were buried with him. And it says, but then you were raised with him. And the Bible teaches that three days later, Jesus was raised from the dead. And when he did, it meant that he conquered sin and he conquered death. He took sin's best blow, and he overcame it. And all of a sudden, he is raised to new life. 
And the Bible says we are raised with him. So when they came out of the water, it was a beautiful picture that their sins had been washed away. The old had died, the new was alive. And then when they turned and walked out of the water, it represents the new life in Christ that they were going to be living. And he says, you know what? We have been buried and raised with him in death. And we've been done this, and it's through, it looks at it through baptism. We are raised with him. And he talks about when we are raised with him, the resurrection of Jesus is the supreme demonstration of the power of God. I mean, at I mean, conversion, we are raised with Christ. We have a new life in the spirit. It is the risen life. It is the divine power that raised Christ of the dead. It energizes us and it maintains that new life within us. So you just think about it. Just as Christ has that resurrection power, we have that resurrection power within us. And that is to energize our life. We have been raised with Christ, been buried with Christ uh, in death, raised to him to walk in new life. Wow. It is all about this life, this union with Christ that we have, this fellowship with the ascended Christ. And it's this act of sovereign mercy that God died for our sins and then raised us up to this, to this new life. So we are baptized with him. We, we are brought down with him in death, but then we're raised in new life. And this is what Paul's telling them. He says, listen, man, you've got this union with Christ. And even as he was buried, you were buried. As he was raised from the dead, you were raised. And it's the power working in God. It was the faith of the power working in God. Then he comes to verse 13. You get to number six, and that is made alive with him through the forgiveness of sin. Made alive with him through the forgiveness of sin. Verse 13, and you who were dead in your trespasses, and the uncircumcision of your flesh. Now there's two things right there. Most of these people in the church were Gentiles. They were not Jewish believers, they were Gentiles. And he says, you had two strikes going against you. Number one, you were dead in your trespasses. You'd sin. The Bible says, wages of sin is death. The Bible says sin alienates us from God. That's where you were. Hey, if you want me to dump some more dirt on you, look at this. He says, and the uncircumcision of your flesh. You weren't even one of the chosen people. You weren't one of the Jewish people who, when they got their circumcision, they said, hey, we're part of the covenant. You weren't part of the covenant. You weren't part of the covenant. You were a sinner. You were alienated from God. That's about as bad as it can get. But God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. God made alive together with with him, with Jesus, even as he made Jesus alive, brought him back from the dead, he has made you alive, having forgiven us all our trespasses, forgiving us all our trespasses. Trespasses are conscious and deliberate sinning against God. And he said, I have forgiven you of those trespasses. They were dead in God's sight. They were separated from God and they're doomed for destruction. And then God steps up and he says, hey, I'm gonna make you alive with Christ. And I'm doing this by the forgiveness of your sins. And then he describes it. By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. Us, Paul includes himself. 
there is this record of debt. Um, literally, it means handwritten ordinances. It is as if you had handwritten all the things you had done that were wrong, all the sins that you had, and then signed your name to it, handed it to God, and said, this is it. This is what I've done. These are my sins. This is what my life is. Uh, and then you present it to him. And there's nothing you can do about it. It's like being accruing a mountain of debt to where you have so much financial debt that there's no way you can get out of it. There's no hope. And you know it. You've met with financial advisors and everybody's just shaking their head and said, it's, it's, it's beyond what you can do. You're going to have to have somebody step up in an act of mercy to help you through that. What it says in here in uh, verse 14 is that that's exactly what he did. He says, canceling the record of debt. Cancel means to blot out, to wipe away. In essence, he cleaned the slate. In fact, if we had one of those dry erase boards over here and you'd written every one of your sins over here, and what God would do is he would come by and he would wipe it away. And he would wipe it cleaner than we can because you wouldn't see the little blue in the background, you know? He'd squirt it. He'd wipe it down. It'd look as good as new. Guess what he did? Canceled the debt. All that sin debt that we had, he said, he canceled it all. He canceled it all. And so all of a sudden, now we're standing here saying, no longer do I have all this listing of all these sins. Now I'm, I'm clean. And he goes on further. He says, this he set aside. He set aside. That means to be removed permanently. So it doesn't sneak back up on you. Now what Satan wants to tell you is that when you come to make a decision for Christ, you ask him to come in your heart, he's forgiven your sins. As you begin to travel that road, Satan will come back and pull those sins you had when you were a child or a young adult or a single adult or in college or whatever else that God has already forgiven and he'll sneak those back in and say, hey, God just put those back on the board again. It was just a five-year exemption. Now you gotta deal with this one again. And not at all. And whenever Satan tries to climb up in your grill and begin to tell you, hey, those things you did back there, oh, God has not forgiven that. Now you just come back here to Colossians, and it says this he set it aside. He set it aside. He permanently removed it. So there are no claims again that would ever alienate us from God. And this is what he did. He says nailing it to the cross. He took those sins, and he nailed it to the cross. During Roman times, when they would crucify a person, they would put their name on a placard and they would write their sins, mainly the sin that was leading to their death, okay? Murder, you robbed somebody, defrauded the government, whatever. And they would nail that at the top of the cross and it'd be right over your head. This is exactly what they did with Jesus, you remember? You know, because when Jesus died, Pilate said, hey, let's put a sign up there and let's put it on there and warn everyone that this is Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews, and they nailed it and put it right above his head. Well, if you can picture this, that when Jesus went to the cross, God took every sin that you've ever committed and every sin you will ever commit, and he took all of your sins and he put them on a placard and he nailed them on that cross. And he put them right there above Jesus. 
And Jesus, as he was suffering for six hours, extended uh, between heaven and earth, and as he's going through physical, emotional, spiritual pain for us, he was paying the price for those sins that were above his head. And he died for your sins, and he died for mine. And he set them aside because he said he nailed them to the cross. And we are made alive with him through the forgiveness of sins. Look at that verse one more time. Verse, thir- uh, verse uh, 13 and 14. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, together with Christ, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. It's done. It's over. You've been forgiven. Let me tell you the last thing he says in verse 15, and that is he's delivered from the power of evil because of him. We are delivered from the power of evil because of him. Now, I've read through the book of Colossians, and I guess I just missed this verse. But this has turned out to be one of my favorites. Uh, I, I, I just love this, what this verse says. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame. All right. He disarmed the rulers and authorities. That word actually means to strip off, to strip something off. Now, it's interesting. In reading what some have said, Rulers and authorities are evil. It's the evil powers. It's Satan. It's his minions. It's the demons of hell. All these things is that when Jesus was on the cross, some have even pictured this, that it's almost like all of the evil began to latch themselves onto Jesus and to inflict pain on him. Right? Now, just follow me with this. And it says that all of evil, all of hell itself is rejoicing because Jesus is being crucified on the cross. They have no idea the resurrection's coming. They just see that their plan is working and that he is dying. And it's as if they've all attached themselves to him and just sucking the life out of him and enjoying it and inflicting as much pain as possible. And then all of a sudden, when he dies and they wrap him on, they place him in the tomb, and then all of a sudden, God steps in and says, hey, this ballgame's not over. Not so fast, my friend. We've got something else over here. And all of a sudden, he is raised from the dead. And when he's raised from the dead, it is as if Jesus begins to strip these guys off, pull them off one at a time. And as he pulls each one of them off, he holds them in his hand. And he holds them in his hand. And when it says he disarms them, that is really a word that is at times meant to strip off someone's armor. So it would be taking a soldier and you said, I've captured you. Take your armor off. They've disarmed them. You've got nothing to defend yourself with. And it's as if he's holding them in his hand. And he's holding them in his hand for all of the universe to see. To say, I am more powerful. And he holds them up and he says, I have overcome you. You took your best shot at me and it didn't work. And you put your trump card, I have trumped your card over here and guess what? Mine is higher than yours. I have taken care of sin. I've taken care of death. I've taken care of all of that. You will be subservient to me. And he will deliver us from all the power of evil. Now, here's what's great is when they read that, when the people in Colossians, uh, Colossae read that, they understand their time. 
Their time is in the midst of the Roman Empire. And what the Romans would do is when they would go out and battle people, and they would get into a big fight, and they may even take territory. When they take territory and they capture the kings and the rulers and the officials and the soldiers, they will then have a big parade in their home city. And the one who led the attack, the main man, will be at the front of the parade on his horse or in his chariot, and he begins to go through the town. And as he goes through his home city, everybody lines up like a big parade, and they welcome the conquering hero, and he comes home. And right behind him are his troops. And they're waving, feeling good. All right, we won. And then behind them is this wretched band of people that they captured. And it is the king or the governors or the officials or the soldiers. And as they walk through, they have been stripped of all of their armor and in some cases just stripped naked because they want to show them as much as possible, you can't mess with us, okay? We have dominated you. You have no power. And they will walk them through that town for everyone to see and place shame on them. Now, if you read the message, I was, just, I was reading the message to see how Eugene Peterson took this verse, this is what he says. All sins forgiven, the slate wiped clean. That old arrest warrant is canceled and nailed to Christ's cross. He stripped all the spiritual tyrants in the universe of their sham authority at the cross, and he marched them naked through the streets. Yeah, you can say that, naked through the streets. It's biblical. It's there. He marched them naked through the streets. How humiliating is that? And he said, this is what Christ has done. He has delivered you from those naked demons, from that evil that is rearing up its ugly head, trying to tell you that, that you have no victory in Christ. He's already taken care of that, folks. He's already won that battle. And he won the battle and he trash-talked along the way. Because he took them right there, he disarmed them, and then he led this triumphant through all the universe for all to see and to say that, that God is superior. He is supreme. And that the battle has been won. And what we're doing here on earth until Jesus comes back again is we're just fighting some skirmishes. We've got some battles we're fighting along the way. But we already know that the war is won. He covered that on the cross. Because of the cross and the empty tomb, the war is won. Okay? We're just doing, this is a cleanup operation that we're doing right now. And then one day he will come back. And when he comes back and establishes his kingdom, then we see it. We'll see everything. True freedom was won for all God's people through the cross, and he has delivered us from the power of that evil. So this is how I close. Last point is this. I go back to the very first verse, verse 7, when he says, Abound in thanksgiving. Your past is forgiven, and your future is assured. Because of him, you need to abound in thanksgiving, because your past is forgiven, and your future is assured. By accepting Jesus Christ, it brings you forgiveness of all of your sins, but it's also deliverance from the power of evil. What kind of salvation gift would it be to have your past forgiven and yet have no assurance of the future? You are free from Satan's accusations now, and you're free from all other aspects of his power that would hinder your future. It is finished. 
He completed it. And the thing to remember when you think about in him is that the conqueror who is enthroned in God's right hand, who is supreme above the universe and is filling the universe with his presence, is at the same time enthroned as the king in each one of our hearts. He is enthroned in our hearts. Is that not amazing? In him. Jesus is my personal Lord and Savior. My Savior, he saved me from my sins. He's delivered me from the power of evil. He's my Lord. That means he has first place in my life. He guides and directs my life. And it is personal. It's personal. Because the fullness dwells in me. And through his spirit dwells in me. The fullness of Christ is in me and is joined with me. And from there, I can move forward and do the things he's called me to do and advance his kingdom, having an assurance of what's out there in the future. That's a great word. Let me ask you to bow your heads, close your eyes. Father, thank you so much for this day and for your word. And Lord, I thank you for the assurances you give us in Scripture. And uh, Lord, sometimes these things are almost, I don't know, difficult to grasp. But I pray that your Holy Spirit would would, uh, bring clarity to what your word says and to give us a hope for the future and to know that there's an assurance that we can have with you because we are in you. For it is in Jesus' name we pray, amen.